It was five days before Christmas, and I was in the first grade. We pulled into the driveway of our house at 1728 Provine Street in Fort Worth, Texas. You forgot to lock the garage door, my dad scolded my mother. I didn't forget, she said. I locked it. Dad got out of the car and saw that the deadbolt to the garage door had been sawed off. He raised the garage door, and there in the place where we usually parked the one family car was a huge frozen turkey right in the middle of the garage floor. We had been robbed, and the robbers had even tried to steal the food out of the freezer, and somehow the turkey fell off of their car as they fled. When the police came, they asked my mom what had been stolen. She looked at me, she looked at my sister, she looked at the Christmas tree, now vacant from all the gifts. As my mom pointed to the barren spot, she began describing what was in each of the foil-wrapped boxes with the handmade bows. I knew it was bad that we had been robbed. I could tell my parents were upset. But I was so excited to learn what was inside of all those boxes. <laughs> there was a little white sweater for Carla, my mom told the police. That is my most memorable Christmas. I don't quite remember how it is that mom and dad managed to get together all those gifts and rewrap them and prepare again for Christmas. All I remember is that I discovered what was inside before I was supposed to know, and I was gleeful to know what was inside those gifts. The Bible tells us that some folks, just a few, knew what was happening when Jesus was just a crying, wrinkled newborn in Bethlehem. The shepherds knew. I wonder, I wonder what happened that enabled them to see what was inside the gift. I'm picturing those shepherds sitting around the campfire, maybe about midnight, watching the last embers of the fire die down, taking that last swig of home brew in the leather flask. Some of them have already gone into their tents, unrolled their bedrolls for the night, a few remain just poking the campfire, singing some old songs. They're lamenting. One of them is complaining about the politics of the day and how unfair this new tax law seems to be unfavoring the shepherds. One shepherd begins to weep. He's telling about his recent divorce. He's wondering if he will ever again have the courage to fall in love. The pain seems too much to bear. He says it's not even that hard to live one's life on the road as a shepherd anymore, now that home seems so vacant, so empty. Suddenly, there's a flash of light. What was that? Did the campfire just flare up? Was that a shooting star? What's that music? Is that from the other group of shepherds? It swells louder and louder. The guys in the tents come running out. What's all the ruckus? Where's that music coming from? 
The shepherds fall silent, looking up at the sky. It shines like every star in the universe has now joined forces into one huge bright light. When the loud music finally dies down and the luminous sky begins to look normal again, the shepherds say to one another, that scared me to death. What was that? I don't know, says one of the other shepherds, but I'm afraid and I think we ought to get out of here and now. And they leave. They go in search of a baby. I wonder how they knew which baby it would be. After all, all the babies were wrapped in swaddling cloth to help their bodies grow properly. And a lot of babies lack a proper crib. With the census going on and the high taxes leveled against the poor, who could afford a crib? So which of the babies sleeping in a feed trough did the angel have in mind when he described a sign? Lots of babies slept on straw or in a cardboard box or in one of those little net hammocks suspended from the rafters in the barn. When the shepherds park their flock at the edge of the fence and go running towards the cave where Mary and Joseph are all still googled-eyed and sleep-deprived over the birth of their newborn, they tell the Holy Family something that even the Holy Family didn't yet know. They tell Mary and Joseph what's inside the gift. My friend Dan grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. He graduated from high school and went off to college in Kentucky. His best friend was named Chogi, and Chogi didn't go to college. He packed up his bags and he joined the Navy. Dan came home that first Christmas break, but Chogi wasn't allowed to leave his post in San Francisco. On Christmas Eve morning, Chogi telephoned Dan. He had gotten a last second leave to come home for Christmas. He would be flying standby if there were seats available. He would have to take three different flights to get from San Francisco to Knoxville. And if it all went according to plan, he could land about 10.30 at night. And he said, Dan, can you pick me up at the airport and take me to church so I can surprise my family by showing up at the late service? Then he said, Dan, if I miss a flight, I'll try to call you. But if you're at the airport and the last plane comes in and I'm not on it, just go on home. Dan asked his mom if he could borrow the family car. After they would go to the six o'clock service and then to the family gathering, he would scoot off with the family car for a little bit. And when he told his mom why he needed the car, she burst into tears. She told all of Dan's family they needed to pray for Chogi to make it home, and she told everybody at the 6 o'clock service they should be praying. And around 9 o'clock, Dan's mom told him he better scoot off to the airport now because Chogi was coming and he was going to land early. Sure enough, the plane landed early, and Dan stood there at the gate waiting. Everyone disembarked except Chogi. And then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw behind another man's shoulder this white sailor's cap. Chogi was the third from the last person off of that plane. 
Dan and Chogi exchanged grins and bad boy hugs, and then Dan grabbed Chogi's duffel bag and headed for the car. Chogi explained that he was the last person on the plane on two of those three flights. He said, I think the uniform helped me. And Dan said, no, it didn't. It was my mom. She had everybody in this town praying for you. When they arrived at church, the midnight service had already begun. Dan was taller than Chogi, and he spotted the family about midway down. Chogi took off his sailor's cap, and he walked down the aisle, and Chogi's mom burst into tears, and his dad started laughing, though probably to disguise his tears. Chogi's brother gave the thumbs up, and the priest on the altar smiled. The gift that was born in the manger, the gift that captured the shepherd's attention, the gift that makes Christmas still, is the gift of God's love wrapped up in human flesh. What matters most above all else is that God comes to us offering us the powerful, joyful, life-giving gift of love in a real human person. No other reason is worth the effort for the angels to sing. No other reason would send us shopping and baking and traveling and writing cards. God's goal in sending Jesus to be born in a manger was simply to remind us how much God loves us. God is madly in love with us. God would go to any lengths to get close to us. Pastor John Buchanan reminds us that the ancient philosophers concluded that if there was a God, some kind of ultimate being, that that God must be somehow perfect somehow complete, somehow lacking in nothing. And if there was a God, that God would have no emotion, no feeling. They had a word for it, apatheia, which is the word that we derive our word apathy from. So apathy would be a, a characteristic of this kind of God. This God would be unmoved by the messiness of our human lives. But when Luke tells us that the heavenly host showed up in the dirty fields with the shepherds and in a feed trough in a still wet newborn, we learn that this God is the opposite of apathetic. God does not make a home in palaces or in presidential mansions. God does not dwell in manuscripts or cathedrals, or museums. God comes to life in acts of human love. At Christmas time, like Joe was saying, we like to help, well, we, we call them the less fortunate. In fact, there are so many in our community who spend 12 months a year helping the less fortunate. But the real lesson of Christmas is that our fortune overflows when we learn how to love people. And by this definition, 
Many of us who are financially well-off are not fortunate, and many of those who are economically poor are extremely fortunate. Peter Marty used to pastor a church right over here on Westport Road. It was about the time I came to Kansas City. Back in the early 90s, long before Peter Marty was the publisher of the Christian Century. And that little Lutheran church over there on Westport Road had a habit of setting up a life-size nativity scene on the front lawn of the church. It was kind of a dicey project. There was the one year that a pickup truck collided with the Holy Family and took out two of the Magi. Five of the eight years that Pastor Marty was there, the baby Jesus was stolen. So Marty developed the habit of kind of checking on things. And one year at Christmas time, he meandered through the nativity scene and he noticed that there was a little gift right next to Jesus. It had a handwritten note taped to the wrapping paper that said, Happy birthday, Jesus. Only birthday was misspelled, so it said, Happy Brith Day, Jesus. Marty wasn't sure if this was some kind of practical joke or maybe it was some kind of handmade explosive device. And so he snatched that gift right out of the manger, took it into his office, and they debated, should they open it? But curiosity got the best of them, and they unwrapped it. And there inside of the pretty wrapping paper was an old shake-and-bake pork seasoning box. And inside the box, they found 33 cents and a little piece of notebook paper with a handwritten note. Dear Jesus, here's some small change for you to use to feed someone who's hungry. I give myself to be kind to others as you were kind to people on this earth. Love, Maria. Marty knew Maria. Maria stood about five foot two inches tall. She was the paranoid schizophrenic woman who lived next door to the church in the house that the congregation ran for people suffering from mental illness. Maria, Maria was like the shepherds. She had already heard the angels sing. And like the shepherds, she amazed others by reminding them that God loves us with real flesh and uses our flesh to love others. Wendell Berry writes, I know that I have life only insofar as I have love. I have no love except it come from thee. Help me, please, to carry this candle against the wind.